Hello, this is Dr. Jamie, your adjunct professor, and I am thrilled to welcome you to another episode of our growing podcast. I feel like it's a really exciting development in our scholarly community. So today's episode holds a special place in my heart as I take a virtual walk with someone I have shared a friendship with for over 45 years, Carla Shelley Drake Walker. And in this walk, we talk about our past. We were reflecting on the era of our youth where there were just different expectations. We were expected to be young, gifted, and black, or as Shelley calls it, the talented 10th. That's a term that I even I hadn't ever really heard of. And so throughout this episode, you're gonna hear some profound moments. In fact, you're gonna hear a moment that led Dr. Jamie to say, No way. I loved it so much. I'm gonna flip back to this, this, you know, talented tent, this this weight on your shoulders. We explore the emotional journey that unfolded when, after witnessing my doctoral hooding ceremony last October, Shelly was able to overcome a decade-long emotional block that hindered her from completing her dissertation. You know, having conquered all of the other doctoral coursework, she found herself at the ABD stage, it's called All But Dissertation. And now, she's ready to dive into a personal investigation, Life as a Preacher's Kid, also known as a PK. Tune in to hear what prompted Shelly to say. And, um, um, you know, I'm begging, begging the police officer. We're almost finished with Beowulf. Can he just wait to the end of class before you arrest him? We're almost there. Um, and so... All right, so let's dive into this candid and deeply personal interview. I hope you enjoy this really meaningful conversation with Shelly. Good morning. Today Good morning. Is, today is January 13th, Saturday. Huh? This is Dr. Jamie of your adjunct professor. And I'm out here in these streets, 5 a.m. in the morning. And I have conducted lots of interviews. I've done maybe three interviews only in this podcast. I've conducted lots of interviews and they usually involve a lot of preparation. Today's interview, I did absolutely no preparation. Because this is, I'm so excited to get to talk to someone who I've known for Jesus. Literally, Jesus is the right, yes. the right name to call. Someone <laughs> <laughs> who I've known since I was like nine or ten years old. Yeah, someone who I've yeah. loved, someone who I've loved all that time. And clearly, well, I don't know if it's clear, but I think it should be clear to people soon. You're the smartest person I know. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Such compliments. So I'm excited to talk to my dear friend and um, uh, one of my first true loves, Carla <laughs> Shelley Walker. Hey, darling, how are you? I am wonderful this bright and early Saturday morning. All right. Here we are. Well, I, it's not, I'm brighter and I'm earlier. <laughs> yes, you definitely for are. Sure, for sure. <laughs> I, I always like to start to say, like, put some context 
and I always like I'm in the state of California or I'm in the state of confusion. Uh, <laughs> where are you? What state? Are you I am in? in the wonderful sunshine state of Florida, right outside of Orlando. So it's a little after eight a.m. my time, but today we are having a little bit of residual from all of that storm that's happening. So it's only about sixty degrees this morning. Oh well, well. <laughs> Well, what, what, so that's the state you're in, Florida, but what state of mind are you in? The state of mind. Wow. Let's see. Today, I am open and available Ooh. and ready. Ooh. All right. I'm so excited to talk about to, to talk with you and to talk about the things that, that I want to talk about. I think we want to talk about the things that we talk about. Mm-hmm. And uh, so let's put some context around our conversation just a little bit. I said, yep. uh, you and I have been, uh, t- describe where we met. Oh my gosh. Well, we met in church in Chicago, Illinois. I really believe I was in the fourth grade. So you must've been in the fifth grade. So yeah, you're right about nine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, we connected immediately and we went uh, from there on several field trips together and we waxed eloquent in elementary school about the wonders as much as of ten, life. As much as 10-year-olds can wax. Right. right. As much as we can wax. And we just formed a bond that does not have words in the English dictionary to describe. Yeah. It's, it's pretty. It's, it's pretty deep and fundamental. Yeah. We can go, you know, days without speaking, and then you know, you know, it's almost kinetic. Uh-huh. You like know something is going on, and you will pick oh, up yeah. the phone and say, "Okay, what's the matter?" <laughs> yeah, we're, we're we're on each other's radar. Yes, uh, definitely. And so the how I remember you as as a little kid, you were um, my side of the story. We, we absolutely did meet in church. We met in a Seventh Day Adventist church, uh, which right. is sort of key to sort of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, your father was our minister. You know how people talk about like when you're a certain age and you realize who the president is, and like Jimmy Carter was my first president, really. <laughs> <laughs> who was your first president? I would have to say Jimmy Carter, yeah. Yeah, Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was, my, was like, I was like, yes. Your father was my first pastor. Okay. Like, I've seen other pastors. I've, you know, clearly, I've had other pastors. But in my mind, your father is my pastor. And, like, he was the first pastor that, like, there was something about the way he preached and the way he was that was, um, accessible even to us at at at, at as ten year olds, and I, I just found him to be. We used the word eloquent before um, to talk about us, but like your father is is an excellent orator. He really is, but he is very human. I think that's the difference between. Um, him and other ministers. He is a minister and he's always a minister. When you see him walking down the street, you know he's a minister. His stance, oh, sure. you know, his his everything about him screams minister, but not piously. 
No. It, it, no. <laughs> no. Okay. I mean, he just he has the, he has the bass voice. You know, he has that commanding presence. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But it's not like, you know, I'm the minister, so you need to listen to what I have to say. He's very human and very approachable. And as a child, um, that was hard for me to articulate to people in the church because they thought he would be on this pedestal. And so as a PK, a preacher's kid, I often was not treated well because um, I was the preacher's daughter. And it was assumed uh, that I, I would have a certain attitude or stance or something. Uh -huh. And so it was very difficult for me to make friends. Very difficult. So when you really? came into my life, it was a ray of sunshine, really Aww. understood that I would be on my best behavior as uh -huh. a child. Um, uh -huh. As a result, other parents would then use that example and say, well, why can't you be more like Pastor Drake's daughter? Uh -huh. That made me an immediate enemy. Oh, well, I, you know, I, I think I was slightly aware of that. And that, that's, that's really sad to hear. Uh, yeah. That that you know that that was your your experience, but like I was I've been sitting here thinking about your comment about your dad not being pious. I I'm not sure if this, if we're gonna both agree to make and this will make the edit, but uh, the moment that lives rent free in my, my mind about your dad, assuming like it was one of the reasons why I from that before I paid a lot of attention to him. But after that moment, I absolutely paid attention to him. I paid attention to him because it was like I have no idea what's going to happen. One day he was in full flagrance, uh, and he goes, there you, go. "You may not be worth a damn." I mean, it's all. <laughs> yeah, that's the humor. Oh my gosh, that is so funny that you would remember that. And that he. Is that lives. Do, do you remember that? Did you, you know I do. About that I do because he was called to the carpet on that mistake on really? that slip. Yes, the president was called. Um, yes, yes. So Ooh. yes, uh, and I, I think though again that just sort of shows the humanness uh -huh. of him because literally, and I am now what, 55 years old? That is the only time I've ever heard my father curse. Well, man, I'm telling you, it was glorious. <laughs> it, it was glorious. Um, but calling the carpet, I, I guess that not, must not have been very comfortable. It's it certainly that moment lives rent free in my head. But I I, uh, <laughs> I don't think we've, we've really ever talked about it. And, and if we have, I certainly didn't know what you're telling me now. Um, Call, being called on the carpet. What 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 was that process like? As you remember, how old were you? I think we were like twelve. The for those who do not know, the Seventh Day Adventist Church is considered um, a bit restrictive. So for him to say something like that was completely out of pocket uh -huh. from the pulpit, uh, uh -huh. no less. So Seventh Day uh -huh. Adventists are very conservative um, and observe the Bible literally. Um, 
So for him to do that was really shocking <laughs> in the midst of a service. <laughs> what, what, was the, what was the impact on you of that moment? I was shocked as I looked at my mother and she just, you know, her her whole countenance was like, do not react. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when we got home, you know, and he was talking about it and my mother, I remember my mother saying, what were you thinking? And he um, was thinking of the next sentence. I don't remember exactly what it was, but the next sentence had an A in it. And he was uh-huh. trying to get there, and then it just came. The two got stuck and came out. Damn, yeah. So. Wow. Uh, uh, the word "damn" is in the Bible, so people need to chill the hell out. You know, hell ass. You know, I mean, they're all there. They're all there. Um, why they are offensive, and as an English professor, I have to tell you, they are letters on a page. Who decided yeah. that they have this connotation? So, um, it's it's been an interesting ride, and. You've been there the whole time. Uh-huh. You've been there the whole time. So I'm I'm very proud to say that I know you and love you and that we have we are still on this journey together. Totally. Because it's not over yet. No, it's not. <laughs> but I so you put some have colored the context a little bit more. Okay. Um so we got to be each other with, with each other until our teens, and then life happened. We became adults. Right. Uh, uh, I moved to New York. You moved um, away. And actually, at one point, you talk about like how connected we are. For ten years, we both lived in St. Louis, I know. miles away from each other, and neither of us knew. Neither of us knew it. Oh my gosh! Neither of us knew it. That was so exciting. My whole world just like blew up when, you know, I found out you were that close. And prior to that, I had not really um, explained my connection with you to my significant other. (laughs) So there was a bit of an issue because I'm like, I am going to meet this old friend of mine. We're going to have lunch. We're going to have dinner. We're going to have all the and he is like, who the hell is he? But once you know, I uh, he once he began to understand the depth of our connection, then that of course thought out over time. Well, we we've had lots of we've had lots of years yes. to have this thought out, Mister Walker. You clearly won. She's your wife. Uh, she's my first love, but she's your wife. And by the way, um, I had a similar discussion to have with my husband about you. <laughs> So, you know, I, I think that um, some connections defy, as you're saying, they defy yes. categorization. And yes. I would say that ours does. And speaking of categorization, we were both born in an era that, and, as, and I really want to do, sort of talk about education and your experience and my experience, but we lived in an era where it was expected to be young, gifted, and black. Exactly. Talented 10th. Young, gifted, black. We grew up where our parents sent us to school, and the adage as they sent us out the door was like, you know, uh, go, be excellent. Noted to get half as, half as far. You need to work twice as hard. Twice Don't as embarrass hard. me. Yes. Um, do every, you know, everything that you do comes back as a reflection on me. Uh, remember the entire... 
the entire uh, weight of the entire African-American race is on your shoulders. And by the way, and by the way, have a good day at your first day of kindergarten. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we, that's what we, what we receive, right? Exactly. Um, Exactly. Exactly. You you know, in hindsight, it doesn't seem heavy. I mean, I mean, in hindsight, it does seem awfully heavy, but at the time it was just, okay. That's what, oh, yeah. that's my, that's my task. And, uh-huh. and let me, you know, meet that task. So we got some pretty strong messages about education and the importance of education. And we both internalized that message in our own ways. How did you internalize that message? I internalized it that, uh, and particularly I am the oldest child in my family. So I was too. the that's one our other to, connection. yes, I was the one to set the example for my other siblings. I was the one to, of course, not sully the family name. Um, And I was to be excellent. It was never um, a conversation that I wouldn't go to college. It was always. It wasn't an option. It wasn't an option. It was it was not an option. And so I never even considered anything other than than that. I mean, as early as as our meeting early is, you know, late elementary, early junior high, I was thinking about colleges and where I wanted to go and what I wanted to study. My mother um, was a human resource director. So from the time that I was probably about 10 or 12, we were interviewing in the living room. I mean, we had to get dressed up. (laughs) We had to come with a resume. Okay, Crystal. And if it was not up to par, she would say this interview is over. We're doing it in tomorrow at two o'clock. You are kidding me right now. I kid now. you not. I you kid are you kidding not. me. So the, you know, we knew, I knew how to interview. I mean, I knew how to interview backwards and forwards and the, the, I don't know if it's, um, it's not a boastfulness, but I know when I walk into an interview, if the job is mine or not now, for sure, for I know sure, it, for sure. I know for it sure. immediately um, because I had all this practice. I'm never nervous in an interview. Never. I know what to do, how to sit, how to st- I know the whole nine yards okay. because we practice. It was, you, it have, was to, you have to set the scene, set the yeah. scene, like set the scene, like put it in time and place. How did, tell me, describe the interview process with your Okay. Mind. So there was, we had a a desk in the office and we always lived in a two-story. So um, I would come downstairs at the appointed time. She would meet me at the bottom of the stairs. Yes, I would have to be dressed appropriately. Um, How old are you at this point? I'm going to say 11. I'm going to six, about sixth grade, 11, 12, definitely sixth grade. Excellent. um, she would shake my hand. I'd have to have, give a strong handshake. If that handshake was too limp or whatever, I'd go back up the stairs and start all over again. Oh, have mercy. Um, if I did anything that was egregious, like say, um, or a word that was not academically sufficient, the interview was over. Oh, my God. And we would start, we would, we would have to re, I mean, she literally would pull out her little calendar and say, okay, when can we reschedule? <laughs> For this interview. So it was a very surreal experience. Um, and it was expected always that I would, would, you know, work. When I got to high school, all my friends were taking these wonderful electives, you know, like creative writing or um, sandblasting or whatever. My mother made me take typing and shorthand. Shorthand is like 
whoever who even knows what that is anymore. I, I remember I was, Greg Shorehead. I remember Greg Shorehead with two G's. Yeah. And I was so upset that I had to take these typing and shorthand classes. But in the summer, every summer, I had a uh, uh, summer job in a in a law firm. Oh, a doctor's did you know office. We, did you know we had that in common? I did not. Okay, I'll I'll dovetail. Go on. So I, you know, all my friends were, you know, complaining because they were working at Wendy's and McDonald's and or out in the park or amusement parks out in the heat. But I was always in an office wearing office attire my entire life. So I am one of the few people that I have met who's never worked in fast food. I have, I've never uh, done that. Uh, I'm the I'm the other person that you yes. know. <laughs> I have no I have no no because in my family that was that just was not acceptable. It wasn't acceptable. You were not going to be you were going to be more than and more than and the line that was repeated often in my family is that they had done and so th- that was the least that I could do. Oh, so my sure. mother's. The least degree she had was a master's degree. So that was the least that I could do. That was the least. The the burden of of being your entire best. And and it was always stated to that we don't expect you to be a 4.0, but we expect you to be your best. But we know that your particular best is a (laughs) 4.0. (laughs) that's bulk and mind tricks yes uh, definitely um so when i think about your family certainly i uh in my mind it's sort of the model of what black excellence looks like and um again young gifted and black was the the credo was the mantra uh my mother uh, you know, she's an incredible typist, and she also uh, had she she did shorthand wow. and um, worked in an office. And I, from the very first time I remember, she, the story is like the first time I saw an, a typewriter, my my eyes lit up. It's <laughs> <laughs> her it's her description, and I do recall being in love with like the industrial age, like it also. You know, the machines of our time. Yes. They were fascinating. And um, so I went to high school. We, uh, I went to some days in school and sometimes I I moved back and forth between the two and uh, sometimes public school for a bit. And then we moved to California. But um, because my mother typed, I typed and I won typing competitions. I typed more than. 120 words a minute at like 15. Oh my and, goodness. Yes. Yeah. So <laughs> I got my, my first job. My mother doesn't even remember this. I had to write an essay for my uh, doctorate application or for something. And I wrote this, told the story about how I worked in a law firm at 15. And I'm pretty sure I lied <laughs> about my age. I'm fairly certain. And I would go down, I'd go to church and I'd go downtown at night particularly on Saturday night, Sunday, by myself. I had a key to let myself wow. into the law firm. I would, I would type court proceedings from a dictaphone. Yeah. That thing that is in your, in your ear and the, the pedal. Yeah. And I got paid 
I don't know, maybe it was like a dollar a page. And, uh, you know, I'd go there and for 15 years old, go, you know, make my coffee. And I was there until like nine or 10 o'clock at night. Wow. Wow. And my mother doesn't even remember it. It's a very different time. Oh, my goodness. Very different times. Yes. Very different And again, times. that is so interesting because my first official real job with benefits, et cetera, et cetera, I was a paralegal. Oh, interesting. In a law firm in downtown okay, Atlanta. And that's what I did. You know, I, um, but in Atlanta at the time, in Georgia, I should say at the time, the laws were pretty lax. And so, um, you know, I was often sent to the law library to do the research. Um, my boss at the time was a raging alcoholic and sometimes he just couldn't make it to court. Um, and so I would have to go in his stead and no. literally, yes, mm -hmm, and literally, you know, and they knew the court, everyone around the courthouse knew his reputation. So, that, you know, they'd be like, oh, that's Mashad's paralegal. So, and I would make the opening statement or whatever it was. We would reschedule and do whatever. And I loved no, it. I lo no way. I loved it so much. I'm, I'm going to flip back to this, this, you know, talented tent, this, this weight on your shoulders. I told my parents, I'm going to legal school. Oh, no, you're not. Sit in law, then you will go all the way. Uh-huh. So the funny joke in my house is uh, one of my colleagues, one of my peers, when she got her PhD, she graduated, and then she went to law school. So the joke in my house is like, after my PhD, it was such a funny joke. I, first time I've thought about this joke on the other side of it was that, because the joke is, when you get your PhD, the next thing is law school. We've been telling that right. joke. Like, no freaking way. I'm tired of reading and writing on command. No, yeah. So so to prove how much I'm tired of reading and writing in, on command, I'm I'm a professor. I'm a professor. <laughs> yeah. Right. 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 Um, and, so I, I, and that was my plan. That was my plan to go to law school. And then, you know, life happened and I ended up going down a different path. But that was the plan. Absolutely. But here's a secret. If there were another degree that I would go for, it would be law. Be law. Absolutely. Absolutely. It would be law. Yes. And my my um, adult children now often um, jokingly um, state that had I been a lawyer, our um, financial situation would have been much better. Oh. <laughs> As opposed to a professor. <laughs> and I, and I, was, I said, but yes, you know, I wouldn't have had I wouldn't have been able to spend the summers with you and holidays. Right. And they're all like, forget that. We would have had money. Right. Right. So. <laughs> um, so how did you get from law, paralegal, to your actual field of study of English? And you've been uh, a fairly lauded English and celebrated English uh, professor and uh, for years. How did you, you make that transition? Well, that was definitely, um, I don't even know if it was fate. I, I, I like to say it was a mistake. Um, wow. At the time, um, I was married um, to my first husband in part, and I needed to um, obtain a degree that would, that would, of course, you know, sustain myself and my child. I had one young son at the time. I think I, I think we divorced when he was about six months old. So I needed to um, 
get something that would would take you know care of both of us. Um, and I literally did start. I went back to school and I started in a poli sci um, degree so that I could. Yes, that was, you know, so that I could go to law school. But the further I got along in the program and remembering the work of the first and second year um, lawyers in my law firm, I realized I would never be home, never be home. And so I needed some type of um position that would allow me to raise my child. And so um I went to those, you know, all those tests that they give you in college about your um where you're strong and all that. And teacher kept coming up and I kept saying, oh no, because I do not like children. No. <laughs> uh, I took the test literally three times. I like out and out lied on it one time and it still <laughs> came up. <laughs> it still came up that that was a recommended profession for me. So I, my advisor said, just sub, just sub and see how you like it. And so I began to substitute in high school. And at the time um, where I was substituting was in Benton Harbor, Michigan, which yeah. was a very high crime, very high gang activity. Uh -huh. um, and, and also a seven-day Adventist Christian Hamlet. Yes, Barry and I went to an Adventist um, school because they had, uh, uniquely enough, they had a single parent program, which was extremely innovative for the religion oh. um, because a single parent is not something that was condoned, right? Divorce, right, right. et cetera. So, but they right. had this program specifically for single parents, whether you were divorced or, or if you were just a single parent and you could go to school and the daycare was provided for you and they helped you with housing, et cetera. So oh, wow. I did that. Mm -hmm. I did that. And when I began the Southern Harbor, which was by, I think, January 12th, the murder capital of the United States, the wow. first two weeks of the, I loved it. Loved it. I really? loved connecting with these children. And these children were completely opposite my entire experience in life right I mean I'm been, I'm a suburb girl my whole life uh -huh. I know nothing uh -huh. about you know the real streets I know nothing uh -huh. about that I mean uh -huh. I'm walking in the park not in the real streets right so, uh -huh. <laughs> so <laughs> in, I mean, in, these, in these metaphorical streets right so okay. um you know I loved it and so they had such a hard time getting teachers because you know the violence was high in the school metal detectors drug dogs I mean I had Police coming. Years are these? It's like this. It's going to be 90, 90? 96. Yes, 96 to okay. like 98. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And, um, um, you know, I'm begging, begging the police officer. We're almost finished with Beowulf. Can he just wait to the end of class before you arrest him? We're almost there. <laughs> um, and so I made the oh connection. I made this connection with the kids and then with the, the police officers. And then that's how I was reintroduced to my now husband, my second husband, because he was a probation officer. Oh, wow. And many of my students were on probation. So they would tell, and I would call them, um, or they were in juvenile detention. I would call them. I'm like, look, he needs to finish this because he still has to graduate. He needs to do uh -huh. this. And so I was up there at the detention center bringing work, et cetera. And that's how... Again, I connected with my husband. But after a few years um, and a few 
violent episodes. I, I just felt like I could not go back to the school because several of the students had been killed in gang activity, not any of my particular students. But I thought if one of if that happens to one of my students, I don't think I can walk back into the door again. So I left uh-huh. that and immediately went to college. And then I've been doing college uh, for over 20 years since then. But it, it's not wow. the same. I mean, it's, it's still fulfilling, but it's not the same fulfillment as it was in changing these these young lives for the vast majority of my students. They were the first ones in their family to even graduate high school. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we, that's we how we unpack. fell into that. Yeah, that's we how we unpack. fell into that. We can unpack some more about like, and, and maybe we have to have a, it'd be interesting to have a, a forum of educators to talk about what, for me, and for both, for what we both recognize as, as, a, as an epidemic. Yeah. In education, it certainly is not the excellence of our, of our era. No. Um, but so you then, um, Entered so what program? So you have the distinction of what we call all but dissertation. So tell us like your your educational progression and and uh, the degrees that you that you hold. Uh, well, I um I have a bachelor's in English. I have a master's degree in English with the specialty of teaching of writing. I have a master's degree in education with a specialty of secondary education. And thanks to the support prompting uh, blackmailing of you, my love. I am now- I I am a black male, so I don't take offense. (laughs) I am now in the dissertation stage of my education, um, doctoral degree in higher education uh, leadership. Okay. So, and I am focusing my dissertation on my experience as a preacher's kid. Okay. Let's talk about that. What I really want to talk about is because for years, you were in my mind as like the rabbit that that I was chasing. Um, (laughs) And I couldn't understand why you just didn't go that last little distance. And you're, you know, so I, I know that your father also is also a, a, a doctor. He has his PhD. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so what connection do you see there is between your father's PhD and your own sort of latent PhD? Hmm. Good question. Um, you know, right? Yes. I would say that, you know, after the blackmailing situation took place with you. He was the first person I told <laughs> that I was going to finally finish I'm, because well, the backstory. The, black, the, the blackmailing didn't happen on the day that you actually heard the threat. The blackmail had been going on for years. That's true. That's true. Okay. So the backstory is I, com- I completed all of the classwork for my doctorate about 10 years ago. I completed, uh, and then I just stopped at the dissertation Why? level because I told myself I didn't need to do this to prove anymore anyone how smart I was. But the truth of the matter in unpacking that was I psyched myself out, and I, as an English professor, told myself, you can't do this. 
You can't write a dissertation. You cannot. And I allow. Yes. I allowed that fear to uh, me, me who, you know, in the years since I have written dissertations for people, I have edited them, I have proofread them, but I could not do it for myself for some reason. Um, and I allowed that wall to stop me until, you know, our other reunion um, and you talked me right out of that wall. And, and probably if I had been honest about it before, I would have I would have done it a lot sooner. But you are literally, and I've said this to I don't know how many people, you are the only person on this earth I know accepts me 100% without any judgment. So I can say anything to you without fear of blowback. And so when I finally confessed to you that I had this fear, you know, that I could not finish this doctor. You were like, like you are now. What? Are you kidding me? You? You? Yes. And that fear was erased. And now, because it became, it, at the time it was a dread. I was like, oh my God, I got to write this dissertation. Oh my God. And now it's like, I can't wait to get it down on paper yeah. because that wall has been removed. But my penance as you pointed out, for waiting for 10 years <laughs> is the yes. university is making me wait a few semesters <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> to, um, to do that. But um, the connection between my father and I, the, my first thought was I want to have my doctorate in my maiden name, like my dad. Oh. But then I thought, you know, um, you know, I mean, that is that's my legal middle name now. So I it will still be my you know, I will still be Dr. Drake Walker um, okay. um, and have that have that connection with him. But it is a I want to make them so proud. Um, and now that I'm in the middle because I have adult children and I have aging parents, I want I still want to make my aging parents proud. Oh. But I also want to make my. Uh, college-educated um, sons proud. And I want to set the example for them because they both have their bachelor's degrees and they both decided that's all they need. They've stopped. Wow. They're done with school. And so, so if I keep that, doing this, hopefully, you know, they will see that, you know, continuing your education is not always for the benefit of a job. It is for self it is for self-actualization, self-realization, fulfillment of just your body. And that's what I want my sons to get. But they are like, you know, bachelor's degree, got the job, I'm good. <laughs> you know, but I really want them to continue. That, that adage that we heard, is, you know, be excellent and all that, it's still, that that tape is still running it. Still, oh, absolutely. 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 So you said that something happened for you. Uh, so our we've gotten to see each other recently, and I love that we get to talk to each other a lot more around your pursuit. And you certainly supported me. You read version <laughs> drafts of my really awful work. <laughs> it was so awful. And you're kind. You're kind. You're like, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was bad. I, I get it. I get it. All writing is bad writing. Um, but 
you were um, among a group of, I have like 25 friends who traveled to DC to participate in my commencement in October. I, people ask me about it, and still for me, the whole weekend is a, is a blur. Yes. But um, I feel like I really couldn't have been present for that if certain people weren't there and you were one of them. You oh, I wouldn't have missed uh, it for any world. Yeah. But like, I blanked out. Um, but, and in that moment, in, in that moment, because we, we had a, we did a nice long walk back. The hotel yeah. after after and I, I I was in my I was in my gown. Yes. Uh, but uh, there are very few people who know me long enough to be able to help me see that moment. Okay. So explain because I did black out. You're sitting there and I'm crossing the stage. What 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 happened? What got, what went through your mind? And how did that sort of push? How did that push the black male uh, okay. for you? <laughs> Well, I will say the initial thing is I was upset. I wanted to come down there and smack the announcer because he mispronounced your name. I'm like, not on this auspicious day. Not on this. You took this moment away from my dear friend by not pronouncing his name correctly, which is not a difficult name to pronounce. Let's just start there. It was spelled out phonetically, but okay. But yes. Um, But then when I saw you walk across that stage, it was as if, I was also on your shoulders. You were lifting uh-huh. me up as well. And it was, um, you were smiling, your walk, your gait was confident, your stride was, this is mine, I deserve it, I know it, I've earned it. Um, and tears came to my eyes because we've known each other so long and to experience that moment with you. And then after, you know, after that, after you walked across the stage, I was done with the graduation. <laughs> so was I. I was like, can we get out of here? But we had to wait. Um, But we had to wait. And then on our walk back to the um, hotel after the graduation, and we physically walked from the commencement site to the hotel, um, and you were in your full regalia. Not a a short walk. Not a short walk. walk. We're on a walk now. You were in your full regalia. And I was so proud to be walking next to this black man in obvious PhD gear. People were stopping and staring as we were walking. We were we were walking and talking and laughing and people were stopping. And once we got back to the hotel, so many people um, congratulated you um, on your accomplishment because you were still in, you know, the regalia. And I just felt so proud to be part of that. And then you had um, donned a shirt that I had also unbeknownst had purchased about uh, um, meeting the assignment of our ancestors. And the connection, again, I'm just like, I have just never known a person so deeply that the connection is we're just thinking on the same wavelength and I could just see literally and I'm I'm not even being I'm not I'm not like overtly spiritual or whatever but I could see the ancestors praise and smile on their faces when you accomplish that feat I could see it I could feel it I could I mean I could just 
I could I could hear their joy with alongside you as you were walking across that stage. It was in the moment, really. And that's why, you know, that's a whole nother podcast about, you know, what's out there. We don't know what's out there. But something oh, was yeah. there. Something was there. there. And I hope and what was there was my grandmother. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I absolutely feel her. Yes. And, you know, now I can. You're, you're just giving me a, a big piece of the experience because I can trust you um, because of our history. They walked with you, bud. They walked with you. I'm telling you. It was it was a spiritual experience watching you cross that set. That's why I was like, I'm done. I, these other people, I don't know what they doing and who they doing it for, but I'm out. I'm ready to go but, now. So, so I've had my experience. The 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 transformation, which like uh, in my defense, literally for my defense, I opened the door to everybody that I've known who had a contribution or would. Um, be supportive or because representation matters. I've only yes, seen one other black man do what I did. So I wanted to make my experience, although it was nerve wracking. I, I don't know how many people were there. I didn't even see the, the number of people. It was on Zoom. It yeah. was like four screens. There were like four screens. But uh, I knew that it was important that I was um, breaking through, not just for myself but for my friends for my community yes. my childhood friends even yes and and so it worked because uh, the transformation happened in you that uh, on that walk you decided to uh, to go back you pro- you swore a blood oath yes i did you're gonna go back. <laughs> and you did you went i back. immediately so, did i immediately did i came home um, got off that plane and began making phone calls um, to old advisors, to my old university, getting transcripts together um, and finding the best placement that would allow me to complete what I started so long ago. And I kept that because I wanted to present it to you when it was completely done, not that I was working on it. I was in the process of it. So when I shared with you, I had been fully approved. Um, I, I was thrilled. So tell us about, so now anybody who's listening has a, a really clear sense about who you are, who we've met to each other and your journey. And what was, you're now, you, you, you presented, I've talked a little bit about your dissertation focus. I want to talk about that a little bit more, but let's teleport back to when you were completing your doctoral coursework before. What what were you um, poised to study then? At that time, it was um, organizational leadership and management. Oh, okay. Yes, and I had no idea what I might do my dissertation on. And the closer we got- I know why. I was in the wrong program. <laughs> well, that, and also, I mean, I'm having this conversation with some some of my student colleagues right now, doctoral student colleagues. Leadership is like one of the most studied topics, right? And I demonstrated to to uh, a student colleague 
that if you just did a, a simple library search on the term organizational leadership theory, it returned 89,000 wow. uh, records. Wow. What new can you say? You have to really yeah. slice and dice to find something, a new question that hasn't been asked. I mean, you can do it, but, you know, so were you, was it's it not be exciting. Yes. No. Right. Was it going to be quantitative or qualitative? Um, and I still had not decided that. I had done my SWOT analysis in my last class, um, and I still had not decided because I could not, I could not determine what I was going to write about. Um, and so I had all of these, you know, I mean, I've been in education all these years and I said, okay, well, but it didn't occur to me until after my experience with you that I need to draw on something that's personal because that's, um, when and why it matters for me. Um, education is what I do, but who I am is separate from that. Um, which, and, which kind of goes back to my my theory that I've been running around in my head that really a lot of what research is is research. Yes, yes, it really, it's really research. is. And it you, really because you is. have to see yourself implicated in the problem. It right. has, just like we see people, we see our colleagues on the medical side of research. They're often trying to find a cure, an intervention for something. That they've experienced yes. a family member or a patient. Exactly. And solve something. Exactly. And so if you look at, or, and I, I don't think that it's always clear that a research, particularly dissertation, is you're trying to solve a problem. And I don't yes. think it's always clear. Okay. Um, and you hadn't really experienced enough of leadership to understand what I the had problem not. was. No, I had not. And as an adult now, um, midlife, Adults. You certainly could now. Um, I certainly, you know, could now. And I've also been able to ascertain as I've, you know, just lived and met other um, preachers, children from all different denominations. We share the same story. It does uh -huh. not matter the denomination. It does not uh -huh. matter the geographical region. Uh -huh. It does not matter even our age. Um, uh -huh. To some extent, the younger um, or I would say the preacher's children coming up now do not have the same experience because the world is different. But right. anyone in within a 20 year radius of myself, we all have that same, same experience. trauma. Yes. And trauma. Same it is trauma. a trauma. Yes, uh -huh. it is a trauma. And it is um, it starts off as an external trauma, but then it becomes an internal trauma. Okay. Are you, are you spitting conceptual framework right now? <laughs> okay, go on. Okay. It becomes internal. Trauma. It becomes internal because of, again, that, and then particularly, um, I will speak about, you know, being a black minister's child. Um, it, it becomes internal because you have the 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 weight of your ancestors, the weight of the talented tenth, you, the weight of your race, and the weight of your God, your religion, the expectation. And quite frankly, like you said, that is just too much for a kindergartner to unpack. Uh -huh. right. It's too much. It's too much. And so, and not to, to dress up every Saturday and perform every right every 
So as we're describing all this richness of our experience, at the same time, we're also talking about that's the center of not just my trauma, yes, your trauma. Yes. So even Critical. in all that greatness, there was a, quite a lot of trauma. Critical me, trauma, the, yes. The internalized trauma of I knew I was gay, but I couldn't be myself. Yes. And so I was hiding myself. And um, that hiding sort of um, catapulted me like, a, like the two opposite ends of a magnet away from the church. Um, like, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, whenever I came back home, I always would find myself there because it was sort of the programming. But that's yeah, where that's- a lot of trauma happened. Um, what's the PK trauma? Um, well, before we hit that, I just want to know, do you remember coming out to me at the aquarium? I, I do. You don't. And I, I do. was so naive as a preacher's kid because <laughs> you, said to, you said to me, I like boys. I was like, so do I. Now nah, what, Lex? What, what about this fish? <laughs> oh, I, I was like, okay, moving on next. What? <laughs> <laughs> I do. But, um, my my trauma, um, I would say, is n- never being allowed to be my authentic self because I was always on display. I was always on a pedestal um, and not one where I placed myself, one that was placed by the others. And because my father was a minister that um, even as an adult, that they they had a right to attend my weddings or my celebrations because, <laughs> okay. because my father I'm was laughing. their pastor. Mm-hmm. Your sister, Kay, just sent me. Uh, there's a this trend going around on Instagram. Ha! Of course, I'm a, pre- yes. I'm a preacher. Of course, I. Of course, and, and yes. Literally, you're 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 saying from that little meme, right? Yes, I mean it is. It is that you know they can mistreat you. I literally, um, I went to a Seventh Day Adventist school that was attached um, to our uh, um, yeah. our church at the time when you know all when we were. Kinds of trauma happened there. All kinds of trauma. I literally did not become. I literally was not able to be valedictorian because my teacher had a beef with my father. Uh, do you know uh, Miss Love locked me in the closet once and forgot about me? Oh my lord! I see, that's what I'm talking about. Um, you know, and um, because this teacher wanted to rise, I suppose, in some political way, she gave the valedictorian um, honor to the president's daughter. Uh, I'll but my it GPA who, was who, higher. Who, who was it? Joseph. Uh, ooh. Uh, Pastor Joseph. Okay. Pastor Joseph. <laughs> okay. Well. well. You can decide if you don't want to bleep it out or not, but I can see that. <laughs> yeah. And so um, my family literally went on a family vacation to Seattle, Washington, all through Grand Canyon, all of that. About three weeks. I missed all of that. I stayed with the Straffords. I stayed with Marie Strafford and Virgil oh. so that I would not alter my GPA. I stayed Literally, and I, I I don't think that the experience was altogether pleasant because I can't remember it. I completely blacked it out of my mind um, the whole three weeks my, that my family was gone on this trip. Um, but I stayed in the eighth grade to make sure that I obtained that valedictorian, and she still took it. 
um, from me. So those types of traumas, just that people felt like they had access. They had the right to tell me what I was wearing, if they liked it or if they didn't like it, if it was too short, if it was too tight, if I had on um, a nail polished color they didn't agree with, if I had on makeup they didn't agree with, they felt because my father was the pastor of the church um, that they had a right to raise me in such a way. And it wasn't until I was, until I went away to a boarding school. So I did, it was a Seventh-day Adventist boarding school, but I went away to a boarding school and came home that I started um, biting back and saying to people, look, my father, we rode in the same car this morning. To church. Okay. <laughs> so if he didn't say anything to me about this skirt, you need to keep your lips closed. Okay. Um, but um, it was it was the trauma of anyone and everyone. Um, and the people who disliked my father coming in and telling me horrible things that no child should ever hear about a parent. Uh-huh. Um, um, the knowledge that some people were trying to be my friend only to get inside information. Uh-huh. Um. So it was very difficult. Um, And I can, to this day, I can count my friends on my left hand with fingers left over. Um, Because of that, I became very, very conscious of who I let into my inner circle because I realized that um, if I said an offhand comment, that would get blown up into such proportion that, you know, the pastor is abusing his children or, or whatever. Um, and so I had to keep my circle very, very tight. And in the Adventist um, religion at the time of our upbringing, the pastors moved rather frequently. They moved about every two to three years. They moved them from right. church to church. Um, right. Actually, Stafford was the longest that we longest. had. Longest, yeah. Church. yeah. So we had been there yeah. over five years. And so, you know, I got to the point where I stopped making friends because I knew in two years, we were going to have to move. So I was perpetually the new girl in the school. I was perpetually the new girl in at the church. Um, and as a minister's family, you know, you're introduced to the church. So everybody has to come up front where everyone is staring at you um, and making their judgments about you. And so I stopped seeking out friends and I found myself, as the case with you, that we were just drawn together. I never, ever sought out friends, never, because I could not trust them. And I knew that from first grade. I knew Uh, that from first grade, from first grade, that I could not trust the little people. I knew that because their parents were, their parents were feeding them questions to ask me. Oh, yes. Well, I I think Mm -hmm. where we connected was like we had very rich inner lives and a sense of rebellion. Yes. And I think your the fact that your father was the pastor was like the most the least interesting thing about you to me. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm so and, oh you have it was so relieving. Oh my gosh. Yes. Because I didn't have to be on. I did not right. have to be on. Yes. All right. Um I I loved your your short little stubby fingers. Uh, and so how, you were able to, how, how you were able to play Moonlight Sonata with those stubby little Oh my I, God. Still, I, I still don't know. Uh, I still don't uh, know. But so yeah. I, you're now talking about so many things. And I wonder what you're going to find in your research. And okay. um, 
I am a, a, a recent convert and like all converts, uh, we are okay. zealous at, 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 if, if nothing else. I was pretty certain when I started the doctoral program that I wasn't going to do a qualitative research that I, I like surveys is going to be neat and clean. I yes. think maybe that was your attraction to organizational leadership. It's uh-huh. neat and clean. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I thought the people who did qualitative research, they, I thought they were nuts. Like how, <laughs> this is insane. <laughs> Why would you do that? And like, it's, yes. it's messy. And, and how are you going to, like, I just couldn't. And I also, technology has even changed dramatically since 2017 when I started this process. Did, what was your, because clearly you are doing a qualitative project. What were, did you have biases yeah. against qualitative and, and what are your thoughts now about conducting interviews and what are you hoping to find? I'm hoping to find other threads um, regardless of the denomination. I can say um, unequivocally um, right now, and this is just with preliminary research, the issue of knowing, understanding, um, believing, accepting that as the preacher's kid, you are not number one. The church is number one. Uh-huh. Is traumatic. Well, uh, the the real the beauty of qualitative research is to be able to describe the lived experience, right, of a particular population in a way that that elevates their voice to understand what their experiences are, particularly if there is a trauma, some solution. Yeah. So. I don't want you to jump to solutions just yet, uh, but I'm so excited. I don't think I've been as excited about a research project as much as my own than <laughs> yours. Yeah, I cannot it's, wait. To see we, I mean, it's it's like it. it's like we it's like we speak the same language you've never met. Yes, you know the PKs, and so that's very interesting to me. The um, the downside, or if, if there is concern for me, is how far down the rabbit hole will this lead me? Uh-huh. Um, and oh, where, yeah. when and where do I cut it off? You know, um, but I think the research is going to be profound because of this shared experience, regardless of the denominational faith, regardless of the geographical um, placement. And so that's very interesting. Um, to me, and if why why we all have that feeling, and if that indeed was what was required of our uh, pastoral parents, if that was actually what was required, or if that was something internal that they decided, uh. you know what I'm saying? Because I I literally remember it being in Stratford, um, someone I don't remember who who the member was, but some members cat literally was stuck in a tree it was after 11 o'clock p.m and they were calling the pastor oh my god oh my god you know i mean i i i I, to this to this day when in fact my phone is on disturb all time if my phone rings after 9 p.m i have a sense of dread (laughs) Oh, well, now you just put another piece of the puzzle together. <laughs> you have you have a, a hate relationship with your phone. Yeah, 
Yeah. I hate really I mean, I have a sense phone. of dread because that phone that phone would go off at 9, 10, 11 o'clock, and I knew it was trauma or something from the church. Um, uh-huh. And my father would get up in the middle of the night, and then I'd be worried about him being out there in the middle of the night someplace. You know, this is before cell phones, you know, before um, wow. before all of that. And I would lay awake waiting to hear him come back, make sure he was back in the house safely. He was attending you know, some, in my view, strangers needs, right? In the middle of the night, uh-huh. in the mean and dirty streets of Chicago. So uh-huh. um, that phone, that phone was, was, uh, was tethered to my emotions after dark. Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Wow. Yeah. All right. So as, as we begin to bring this to a close, I have a couple questions for you. And I'll I'll sort of a proposition and maybe an invitation. I'd like you to come back several times uh, at key points, at key moments during your dissertation development to, to describe it, to sort of have a consult about it, but also to, to share with other ABDs who, like you, are struggling with imposter syndrome is real, folks. It is um, real. Would you, it is would you real. Would you be willing to come back? Um, Absolutely. Process to, to share. I, I, I would love to, um, first of all, document the process for you. Okay. Uh, which will be very useful for, I think, your uh, chapter five. Yes. Um, but I always ask, as we wrap this up, uh, you know, what are you walking away with? Pun intended. <laughs> I am walking away with the... What were you walking away with, Walker? Truth. Absolute, unequivocal truth. And being able to now, um, at this stage in my life, express that truth. Without regret. Without worrying of damaging um, a religious career or Uh um, embarrassing anyone. So it is completely uh-huh. 100% my truth, my story. Um, um, because I've often wondered who I would have been without the imposter syndrome. Ooh. What might have I experienced? What what places uh-huh. would I have gone? Um, so I feel like in in a way that I have I've had a wonderful life. No, no, don't get me wrong, but I do feel like I've missed out on so much. Mm-hmm. I've missed out on so much, um, mm-hmm. and who I would have been had I had those experiences, and the mm-hmm. lack of the how those the lack of those experiences have shaped me, and mm-hmm. shaped, and formed um, my philosophies. So, this is a growing experience for me at this, you know, I'm having the opposite of a midlife crisis. I'm having a midlife <laughs> awakening. Yes. Yeah. Well, that, that's, what, that's what follows. That's what follows the midlife crisis. The midlife awakening. The awakening. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm having, I'm well, having the awakening now and I am, I am completely at ease saying, discovering, feeling, finding, researching the absolute truth of me. Well, I can say that as someone who's known you 
for 40 something plus years. I don't recall ever seeing you this integrated. Mm -hmm. I don't I, ever recall you being this free. That's, that's the word I was going this, to use. This unencumbered, yes. this uh, sense of self-possession. Um, you know, as, as first kids, there's, you know, there's also the, the, the we become, we're parents. We, we are, right. we're de facto parents. And you've been a de facto parent to so many for so yes. long yes. that I'm I'm thrilled that this is something that's specifically for you, um, for your own. Um, and it's for others. You've described that it's for your sons, it's for your parents, but it's really um, unencumbered by like what it means to them. Prioritizes what it means to you, and I am thrilled yes. to to be on this journey with you. I, oh, you, you I wouldn't know, have you, anyone else. You know, I love you. I love you so much. I wouldn't have anyone else on this journey. There's not another soul on this earth I would trust to take this journey with me who who understands all of the ins and outs. And, and the, you know, I can begin a sentence, the ending of that sentence and all the innuendos. And so I am very proud to call you my friend. Yeah, me, me too. Ditto. Very, very proud. You. Well, thank you so much for this call. I can't, or this Absolutely. talk, this conversation, this walk. I can't wait for our next installment. Have an, um, let me, I'll, I'll end with this. Um, are you ready? Yes. Happy Sabbath. Happy <laughs> Sabbath. <laughs> uh, until next time. Until next time. To be a What a lovely, precious dream In this whole wide world